Thanks for tuning in. You're on localjobnetwork.com radio, and I'm your host, Jacqueline Peterson. You are listening to Government Compliance, where we take federal contractors and subcontractors through the current trends of affirmative action planning, equal employment opportunity, and Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. And today we have expert Sandy Ziegler, a recognized authority on federal EEO enforcement with 25 years of experience divided equally between the EEOC and the OFCCP. Sandy, we actually brought you in today because you recently wrote an article about OFCCP's new model conciliation agreement for compensation. Now, before we dive into the details about the article, what's the overall purpose of this? You know, it's interesting that they had it as an addendum to a chapter that didn't look like was particularly uh, changed in the new FCCM. You know, they just issued a revised version of their federal contract compliance manual. That's what FCCM is. And basically what that document is intended to do is to give guidance to the field as to how to handle investigations, how to resolve problems and violations that are identified. And so this is a part of that. So in general, that's what these kinds of documents are meant to do. And in the current FCCM, uh, even in the revised one, they have Chapter 8, and it has what I call the standard text model CA, which OFCCP has used for years to design its uh, conciliation agreements and cases. This addendum, and there actually are two, but I only focused on this first one, are specified by what exactly the violation is. So you have a model on compensation, and then there's another model that has to do with hiring and record-keeping and other kinds of things. So you wind up, Willie, with uh, more details uh, in this model on compensation, which I thought was kind of interesting. I looked in Chapter 8 to see if they talked any more about what led to it or what they hoped from it, but there, like I said, there's nothing that they specifically talk about. They don't even mention it, interestingly enough. But it is back there, and it wouldn't be put in there if it wasn't meant to be followed. So what tends to happen is the field will find it, and that will be the direction in which they will you know, move in terms of changing the language or, or how they draft the violations. Now, in the article, I think sort of peppered throughout it, you do mention several times that the conciliation agreement is is a contract. It's a negotiation. So I just want to clarify that for our listeners out there. So as we're going through some of the details that you talked about, but that something that you do stress is that this can be negotiated. Is that accurate? or Absolutely accurate. And it's critical, I think, for a contractor to understand how the negotiation process works. At, at the time you get to uh, conciliation, you're trying to resolve what OFCCP believes is a violation of the regulations or the laws that it enforces. And they're trying to reach that agreement without going to court. So in order to do that, they're trying to come to terms with the contractor. You know, here's what the violations are as we see it. Here's what we think you need to do to fix it. And the contractor has a lot to say about you know, whether it agrees with that, uh, what kind of terms of things ought to be in there. And one thing I did note, which was kind of odd, is that there's a lot more language of contract law that they've put in. You know, for example, they talk about the voluntariness of it and that it embodies the whole agreement of the parties and that if one of the provisions is, you know, is found to be problematic, that it doesn't void the whole agreement. A lot of this kind of language you find in contracts wasn't in the standard text CA. So there's a lot of information in there. And it also, sometimes we would talk to, when, when I was uh, the regional director, you may have an agreement on paper, but there may have been some other things that you understood. For example, uh, that if they couldn't deliver the, the information, you know, or the letters, what they would do. Some of that was in there, but there might have been some other things that you came to agreement about. This makes it very clear that if it's not in the pages of the conciliation agreement, it's not going to be viewed as something that 
the parties have actually agreed to. So even more than before, you have to be sure that the wording, that what you say, what is said between the contractor and the government in the document is exactly what you want to have said and that that's everything you wanted it to say. Because otherwise, you know, if it's not on the paper and you sign the papers, when they go to court to enforce it, if they have to do that, they're going to focus the court's attention just on what the words are that are in the paper. So it's really an important document. Uh, and it and it changes, it potentially changes your employment practices and, and it exposes you to, uh, you know, payments and different kinds of things that are important to you as a company. Okay, no, that's definitely good to know. It's something that they're going to need to spend a little time uh, finessing there. Okay, good. Now, in the conciliation agreement, there's a mandatory clause that sets out uh, the process for challenging violations of the agreement, and it makes it clear that OFCCP does not necessarily have to prove the underlying violations in order to enforce the agreement. And then you also went on to say that OFCCP has the right to review compliance with the agreement, including you know written reports, interviewing witnesses, et cetera. What does that mean for contractors? Well, what that means is that once you enter into an agreement, let's say that the OFCCP says that you're discriminating in compensation. You don't agree that you are, but you look at the you know overall scheme of things and you figure, well, maybe I'll be able to resolve this through a conciliation agreement and not admit that I did anything and make these payments and it'll be okay. But then you don't do something that you said you would do or OFCCP thinks you didn't do something you said you would do in the agreement and it goes to enforcement. OFCCP does not have to prove that you engage in compensation discrimination to enforce the CA because now you've entered into a separate independent contract with them that you're going to do certain things in exchange for them not further pursuing in the administrative process the violations that they cited you for. So if, let's say, mm. you agreed that you would give uh, performance appraisals that had specific examples, uh, we'll talk about this a little later, and you don't. Uh, they could take you for compliance, uh, uh, you know, for violating the CA because you didn't do something you said you would do without showing anything about whether you ever discriminated in the first place. So what you promise to do is a separate obligation. That's why it's important that you're conscious of what the import is of what you're saying you're going to do because that could form the basis all by itself for an agreement. And this isn't new. The mandatory clause has been in the standard tax that's been uh, done for years, and, and the, uh, the ability to, to check on compliance with the conciliation agreement has also been in there for a long time. One thing I thought was kind of interesting is that it used to say that they could get reports, interview witnesses as relevant and pertinent, basically to the issues uh, under, uh, under examination, but now they took out relevance and pertinence, which shouldn't make a difference. I mean, they shouldn't be able to go on wild goose chases or fishing expeditions just in general. But I think it's interesting that they bothered to take those out because it seems reasonable that if you're going to check for compliance with the agreement, you would look at things that are relevant to that issue. <laughs> right. But seem to want to not have that in there, I guess maybe to, to uh, avoid too many arguments about whether something was pertinent and relevant, but okay. I, I don't think that is a huge problem. Now, the article does go into specific violations and remedies. For example, it details how the OFCCP will focus on when a violation is believed to have started, what race, ethnicities were impacted, um, you know, genders or other groups that were impacted, job groups, et cetera. You know, what can contractors do to prepare for this kind of investigation? Actually, I was thinking about this, and when it comes to preparing, basically you don't want to find yourself in violation to begin with. Right. At the conciliation agreement stage, 
you've already been found in violation. So there's a question of how do I avoid even getting to conciliation agreements? And then once I'm involved in conciliation, how do I make sure that the process is fair to me? It would be nice. And I think contractors and frankly, OF, I think, would like to have a much more clear understanding of how not to be cited for compensation discrimination. There are certain basic things, but there's a lot left to the imagination. For example, the basic idea is that you should be able to explain any apparent disparities in pay between groups that uh, could be the focus of an OFCCP investigation using something, I mean, there has to be a non-discriminatory explanation. There needs to be some business-related uh, explanation that doesn't have a disparate impact, doesn't, isn't an, uh, a matter of uh, this particular standard has a uh, more of a, I guess, a lowering effect on the pay of a particular group versus another group, or that somebody intentionally did it, or you have something about your compensation practices that disadvantages the group. If you have, if you check regularly to see are there any big gaps and can I explain them, then ideally that should keep you out of trouble. Problem is that there's not always an agreement about who should be compared to whom. There's not always an agreement about what exactly the test should be for whether or not the disparity is problematic. And then, you know, figuring out how I should make the adjustment can also be a, a point of difference. So it, you hopefully are you have some kind of, you know, reasonable organized policy for how pay is set, and you can explain what you do. And you keep good records so that those explanations will be supported by the evidence. When it comes to negotiation, I think the fact that the OF has set out that these are the certain things that need to be in the description of a violation, the contractor should get this information as they're going along in the investigation. They need to know who is it that you think I discriminated against? When did it happen? What exactly was it that caused it? And and so these factors that they say the compliance officer should include in this violation, I think, are pieces of information that the contractor should collect as it's going through, because that's where it can defend itself. You know, if, they con if the OFCCP says that there's discrimination because you did X, then you can look and say, A, did I really do X? Does it really have the impact that they said? How about these people they're looking at? Are they really similarly situated? You know, you're saying this group was affected. Let me look and see how that group fared compared to other groups. As you're going through a, one of these investigations, you need to be doing your own investigation so that you can defend yourself as, you know, as OFCCP raises these particular issues. So it's fair that, to find out, you know, are, what specific race, not just minorities in general, but is it uh, African-Americans? Is it, uh, you know, Latinos? Who is it? specifically that you are saying are adversely affected by my practices. What was the job? Is, are those people really in the same job? Or does somebody say, for example, have the same job title, but one has supervised responsibilities and the other one doesn't, which would make a difference in perhaps in how you pay them. So I think the fact that they set out these particular things is helpful to the contractor in the sense of showing the contractor where they're going to need to be looking to make sure that the violation is actually being correctly cited or to make sure they don't get into violation to begin with. Right. Well, that would be the ideal thing. Okay. <laughs> no one wants to be here when it comes to the CA process, exactly. but, you know, people do. Right. So, you know, it's important, I think, even when you're in there to have some idea of what you should be told. So it sounds like what you're really saying is that, you know, even though the OFCCP might find some violations, do your due diligence as the employer and investigate what they're finding, you know, follow up in your own records and make sure that what they're looking at is what you see on your end, just to make sure that they're mirroring each other and that you guys are on the right track in remedying these issues so that you mitigate them for the future, but to also, you know, double check and make sure that the information is accurate what the OFCCP is finding. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think ideally the contractor is doing what OF will do before OFCCP comes so that if it identifies a problem, it can be long fixed and you won't have these indicators springing up for the agency. Sure. But even if you get to the point where they start to see indicators, you got to stay diligent because sometimes maybe there are people included in the pool who shouldn't have been. Or maybe there are uh, factors that explain the pay that the agency's not aware of. Or maybe two jobs sound a lot more alike than they actually are. You know, maybe one is performed in really harsh conditions and undesirable hours of the day. That might account for why, you know, apparently, if you look at their job description, what they're doing, they seem to be more similar than they really are. So these are the things I think contracts really have to stay on top of because you know, compliance officers are looking from the perspective of, you know, what are the elements of a discrimination complaint, but they don't really know how their job works. And that piece of information about how the job actually works and what the conditions are and where the differences are is really the domain of the of the contractor and they can perhaps educate the agency as to well here these two look like they're the same but really they're not and here's why there's a difference in pay oh excellent oh good good tips there um, something that you also had stated in the article was that contractors should be particularly concerned with part three section c and what was it subsection four, um, the impact analysis and prospective salary adjustments. Can you expound upon why they should be concerned about this? Yes. You know, the prospective salary adjustments are the raises in salary to, to correct the, you know, the perceived discrimination. So if I think, for example, that women are being underpaid relative to, to similarly situated men, not only do they get the back pay that they missed from the time the discrimination started until the time the agreement is entered into, but going forward, the agency wants to put in something corrective so that they won't continue to experience that difference in pay that's due to discrimination. So they'll require the contractor to raise the salaries of the women in this case. Uh, and you can't, you can't correct it by lowering the salaries of the men. That's not allowed. So you're going to, the prospective salary adjustment is the raising of salary. What troubled me about the way they approach that is that in the example, and these are samples, but it talks about you having an agreement to run a regression analysis after the signing of the agreement, identify those in the disfavored, you know, the disfavored group, and then according to a predetermined formula, raising all their salaries. What troubled me about that is it was a regression that led you to say that the company was in violation. Why do you need a separate second regression? A lot of times there's time that elapses and sometimes significant amounts of times between when that first analysis is done that leads you to say the company is liable and when the matter is finally resolved through a conciliation agreement. So the people that are in their employment pool may not be the same people that were in the regression analysis that formed the basis of the liability. So my question is, why not use the regression that you're relying on to say that, you know, these people are in the affected class, the affected class of those people that are going to share in the remedy, the ones that were discriminated against, as it were. Why wouldn't you use that same regression to decide how much of a disparity there is and how these people should have their salaries adjusted upward, as opposed to running a second and different regression after the CA, so the, the employer basically would be signing a CA not knowing who's in the affected class, because there may be a new affected class as a result of this second analysis, and they, they don't know how much uh, money we're talking about, what the degree of disparity is going to be. And signing a conciliation agreement without knowing what you're really agreeing to do, it's just all kind of formulaic and not, not defined, to me, that would be that would be concerning. 
And that's why I say that contractors should be concerned about that. Right. Because I, I, if you're trying to go back to your management and say, here, you know, we think this is a reasonable settlement, you need to know how much you're going to be paying out going forward as a result of what you signed. And I also don't understand why you would separate the two out. When, I mean, if, if the first regression was su- sufficient, that the, that the uh, OFCCP is confident you engage in discrimination, why isn't it sufficient to uh, point to how it needs to be corrected? Right. And I was worried that maybe somebody would come on board. Let's say it's women. You've, got, you've hired women since then, and now they're in your pool, and they weren't even there uh, during the time period that the liability was referring to. So, you know, how do they get treated? And if you find some new ones that you missed, do you, you now renegotiate back pay? Because this is only talking about prospective relief going forward. You can see this. This is why I think you shouldn't just, you know, hop to sign this right. if it has something in it. I think you really have to think through what am I agreeing to do? Who is it that's going to be uh, getting some of this? And, you know, what are the consequences going to be for me as a company? Uh, I, I believe that as a basic principle, the remedy for discrimination should be tailored to the identified violation. And here, by having a separate regression for liability than you have for remedy, you're, you're creating a separation. There's too many unknowns. (laughs) Right. You're agreeing to something without really knowing what it is that you're getting into. And uh, that, you know, that is very, I mean, from the perspective of the agency, well, they get another chance to see if they can bring in some more people as, you know, additional members of the affected class. But as a company, you want to remedy what they already found. You don't want like an open everything. (laughs) Do you have any tips or how, how do they go about, you know, bringing that to their attention and saying like, whoa, 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 you know, let's take a step back here and let's try and tighten up this before we you know, move forward with a, a second one. You say, well, actually, you, you do it pretty much the way you're saying. You say, whoa, <laughs> let's talk about this a little while. Because, I, you know, I, I can understand from the agency perspective, I think it's legitimate if you haven't been, uh, you know, engaging, if you've been uh, apparently at least engaging in discrimination and pay, that at some point they want you to make sure your systems for monitoring that are intact and that you're making corrective measures. But what I have a problem with is trying to remedy the identified discrimination by doing that immediately after the CA. I could see you agreeing down the road that you're going to monitor your pay process. I don't know that you'd want to necessarily agree that regression is the way you're going to do it. I mean, the agency, after all, doesn't want to limit itself to regressions as the only way to enforce. So I kind of don't see how they can hold you to one particular model. But I think that agreeing that, okay, I'm going to do the monitoring the law requires going forward, but with respect to fixing this violation, let's look at the figures and facts that you're relying on to say I violated it and use them. And I I think that's a reasonable pushback. Okay. And another idea that I kind of want to hit on is that um, it, let's say that, you know, the employer is is found in, in some sort of violation and then they have to um, do salary increases. Do What about those current employees that were also impacted? Do they get uh, back pay? Well, the way it would work is that the, the agreement itself is based on a, a, a liability finding using the numbers. And they have identified an affected class that would get the back pay. That's what the conciliation agreement does, and it sets out the amounts, how much is back pay, how much is interest. This is where I'm saying that those people are the only ones really who should be at issue for salary bumps going forward, in my view, okay. because they've got back pay, and this is to correct the part where I their see. ongoing salary should not reflect the discrimination. What creates a problem is if you create the second uh, regression, and now you've got other people who weren't paid in the under the terms of the CA, any back pay, if you see a problem with them, you really kind of need another uh, compliance ev- uh, evaluation so you can identify 
who else has been added and whether or not and to what extent they're entitled to back pay, because they may not be entitled to the same amount of back pay as your, your first group, depending on you know, how long they've been working for the company and you know, what all it is that's leading to that particular discriminatory problem. Okay. If you're getting if you're getting prospective relief, you should have probably gotten back pay. Okay. They go hand in hand. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, you know, the reason you're even doing prospective relief is because someone in the past, you know, has been discriminated against here, and if we keep doing what we were doing, that discrimination will continue. So it doesn't make sense in my to my way of looking at it to have anybody in the class that's only getting prospective relief. Okay. Another area that you had hit on in the article was that you said contractors should also be concerned with samples under D, non-monetary remedies, in Part 3. Um, can you expound upon that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting how they go about it. If you look at CAs that, that the agency traditionally enters into, when they talk about non-monetary relief, uh, that's everything but the back pay and the, and the prospective pay, there's different things that they may ask you to do to fix the problem as they've identified it. What they generally would do with non-monetary remedies is pretty much reflect what the regulations require the contractor to do to begin with. So they'd say that, you know, the contractor agrees to do and they, you know, basically track the language of the regulations. Here in the non-monetary part, they're going beyond that. And they give this example uh, about, they give actually two examples I'd like to talk about. One is about performance evaluations. And they're saying that the infrequency and inconsistency of the performance evaluation has led to discrimination. Here's, you know, what you need to do. Uh, and then they tell you that you should have a policy uh, about it, about how, you know, what the standards are going to be for performance evaluation. And then you should uh, make sure you give specific examples in the performance evaluations that you give that describe what the person did or didn't do that warranted the rating that they got or didn't get. And they're, they're basically telling you how to run a performance system. A couple of problems with that. One, if it's frequency, usually with discrimination, if I'm giving you, let's say, every six months I'm supposed to give you a performance evaluation, as long as your frequency is the same as everybody else's, I'm not giving you know, men, uh, they only get theirs once every year and you get yours every, you know, every quarter. You know, there we would have disparate treatment. But you can give it as frequently or not frequently as you want to as long as it's not discriminatory. So infrequency in and of itself, unless it's specifically, you know, you're giving more, you know, more reviews to one or, or a person that's more of a chance maybe to get pay adjustments based on their performance, you know, if they belong to one particular group than another, mm-hmm. then you wouldn't have a discrimination problem. So if you're talking about correcting infrequency, it wouldn't be requiring a contract to write and implement a policy requiring annual performance evaluations. I mean, and whether it's annual or not is really up to the company. I mean, they can do one every two years. I, you know, I don't care. As, a, as an enforcer, you just want to make sure that whatever they do, they do it in a non-discriminatory fashion. So generally speaking, instead of making a general statement that, you know, you have to, to, to do it annually or making that part of your agreement, you would basically agree that you're going to uh, evaluate all these people without regard to their race, sex, gender, whatever it is. And then they tell you that the direct supervisor has to work with them and they've got to give them constructive feedback. All of this is in the realm of HR, which goes beyond the, the, what actually the discrimination is. For example, inconsistent ratings. If you have some particular part of the rating process where you're holding, say, uh, women to a higher standard to get a raise than you're holding men, then that's what you need to fix. You know, you need to fix the fact that you're holding them to different standards. It's not so much that, uh, you know, you have to provide, identify examples or establish goals and objectives and feedback. 
So, you know, I think that the tailoring is, is kind of moving away from correcting the discrimination aspect of what went wrong and into instructions that are generalized about how you should run your performance system. And what happens if you marry this with the fact that you have to do what you promised to do, is say you missed your annual review or for some reason you didn't give a specific example, now you're in the realm of I'm violating my CA even if I actually, you know, that maybe the agency was wrong about me discriminating in pay. But we're not going to you know, litigate that anymore because I've signed this agreement. Oh, yeah, so yeah, I think they yeah. have to be careful about agreeing to do a bunch of things that have less and less to do with a specific violation because the employer imp- it basically opens up more areas where it can be found out of compliance with the CA. Okay. Uh, and the other one was a starting salary thing. And they were talking about, you know, you can't use starting, you know, your previous salaries, you shouldn't use it as a sole uh, factor in how your starting salary gets affected. And uh, that I thought was kind of an interesting sample because uh, there's nothing really in the law that says that. And it, it kind of suggested that uh, if you, you know, if the person has experienced discrimination in pay somewhere back earlier in their career, and this has, you know, had a cumulative effect over time, that the employer, this contractor who's now hired them, has some obligation to uh, correct this, you know, th- this discrimination in, in prior salary. And what worried me about that, first of all, you had nothing to do with what this person earned elsewhere. Right. Even if their salary has been depressed because they ran counter to discriminatory employer two employers ago, are you responsible for making up for what that employer failed to give them? As long as you're not personally discriminating, you don't have a practice that discriminates, I don't see how their prior salary becomes your particular problem. And the fact that, that people get discriminated against in salary over time, they also get discriminated against in educational opportunities, they get uh, discriminated against in the opportunity to have certain experiences, to get certain certifications. The, the idea that only we only need to look at, uh, you know, make sure that the prior salary isn't included, we're going to put all these other things, every one of these things could have been impacted by discrimination. So it's an odd sample uh, from, from my perspective. And uh, the, there was one more thing was about the evaluation thing. Mm-hmm. As part of the remedy in the, non-mon- and the non-monetary part, they do tell you that you, you should run another analysis to see what exactly in your process causes the problem, which wasn't that what the compliance evaluation was all about. So it's, it's to me kind of bizarre because the whole idea of regression and having these sophisticated uh, analyses is so that I can account for the major factors that have an impact on pay. That's why that tends to be the favorite analysis, even though the agency said it can use a variety of, of tools. But they do that so they can pinpoint it. And then by giving you this conciliation agreement, they, as they've already given you a notice of violation. They're saying based on our reliance on our regression, we say you discriminated and here's how and why you did it. So why would you turn right around and rerun that analysis and hire an expert to identify what part of your process is problematic? That's what, that's, if, if, if the agency is not confident that it knows what part of your process is problematic or that you have a, a disproportionate pay system or a discriminatory pay system, then why are they citing you? Good. Okay. Well, let's switch gears here and um, talk a little bit about some tips and best practices for employers to help mitigate just this entire you know, idea of issues regarding compensation. I know we sort of touched on it in the very beginning, but do you have any sort of final thoughts and, and tips for our listeners out there? Well, I've got a couple of final thoughts. 
what in general you you need to have i think if you if you want to be able to understand your own pay system you should know how it works there should embody memorialize somewhere what's your what's your pay philosophy what is the actual practice how do you make these decisions uh regarding pay because it's easier to defend it if you know what you're doing and then you should test your for the pay disparities if you have the capacity and not everybody does but if you have the capacity to run these regressions do that and and make sure that you understand where the gaps are so you can readily explain them and uh and that you know who in your organization should be compared to whom you know they're not going to necessarily feel bound by your idea of who the comparators are but at least that way you're if you see people being compared who shouldn't be you can readily explain what the difference is and then keep the keep the records to back those things up I think in negotiations, you also need some tips, and that is that it is a contract. So remember, this is not just you know a, a finding a, that a court's imposing after a litigation. This is you agreeing to certain things in exchange for the agency not pursuing litigation. So I think you have to be careful, probably more careful than in the past, since they have this language about if it's not on the paper, it's not there. I think you have to make sure, as you look through there, what am I really agreeing to do? Is it limited to compliance? Because the purpose of the CA is to bring you into compliance, not to make you the model employer. Right. You know, is this what I'm really required to do under the law, or am I agreeing to more than that? And you know, how? Uh, what are the different ways that I could possibly get in trouble for not complying? And do I have a system set up to make sure that doesn't happen? So, if you agree you're going to do something on an annual basis, how are you going to make sure that doesn't slip past you? Okay. So, I think th- those are important things to look at. And you always want to come in with counsel. <laughs> and and make sure that the that the negotiation is based on the facts of the of the case because a lot of, I mean almost no one enters these OF uh, agreements or negotiation sessions and agrees to everything that's first proposed so you do have room to negotiate. Perfect, and that does it for today's show. Government compliance. Thanks, Sandy. We appreciate your expertise and experiences about this ever-evolving topic. And this does it for today's show, Government Compliance. Continue listening to LocalJobNetwork.com radio for your latest employment-related programs. And if you have comments, suggestions, or questions, email us at ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. I'm Jacqueline Peterson for LJN Radio. Thanks for listening. 